Welcome to the Action Research Podcast. Somehow, the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. Each episode, action research experts Adam and Joe explore facets of this research methodology. Speaking with experienced and emerging action researchers, they aim to contribute to this important and growing field and understand the nuance and process of action research in action. If you're just tuning in, this is part two of a series with Dr. Christopher Stonebanks. Christopher is a full professor of education at Bishop's University and adjunct professor at McGill University's Department of Integrated Studies in Education. He's also one of the founders and co-directors of Praxis Malawi, a community-driven space for lifelong learning. Building off of their previous conversation, in this episode, Adam and Joe are going to dig a little deeper into this initiative. Let's get right back into it. One of the themes that we have been talking about a lot in this podcast is the role of relationships and relationship building in action research and the amount of time that it takes to really work through building those relationships. Adam, why don't you share a little bit about your experience in Peru? When we were starting our organization, we barely had any money at all. So it forced us to show up to the communities that we were working with in, in the same rickety vans that they were when they were returning to the market and all of the sort of informal processes that ended up leading to this idea of relationship building, which was never a strategy, right? It's hard to like strategize, all right, team, let's go out and build relationships today, right? Yeah. It has to be a sort of organic process, but it is also, I think, the most crucial and critical step in starting any sort of action research process. Mm-hmm. So if you can't strategize for that, and I'm just making an, an assumption based on my own experience, what would you tell, how would you breach that in, in let's say either faculty or student getting involved with action research, or even what would you say to a community or a community residents who you're thinking about creating some sort of relationship with and sort of kickstarting that process? Well, you're right in that like icebreakers and workshops aren't going to make a difference. You know, you can't go about it that way and then pretend at the end of it of uh, an hour that everybody you know knows each other's names. Therefore, now we all know each other. It, it doesn't work that way. So for me, it's all about time commitment. So one of the first things that I became aware of was that I can't remember the name of the author who wrote the book about uh, Haiti and he gave that description of watching NGO, like white trucks, NGO and not-for-profit white trucks just passing by the villages. Like they were always on the highway moving from one place to another. And that became very clear to me right away, which is that the when you start living in in a local village, in a, in a rural village, and I don't, I don't mean like you're living there like like you're, you're now like a citizen of, of that village, Although people are quick to say that to you, you know, it's, it's very polite and it's very nice, but you're using your, well, you're part of the observation of action research and you're realizing and you're reflecting on the fact that you don't see any of those trucks stopping in the local villages. Like nobody is having those kinds of conversations. And then you realize, well, that's why there's this complete disconnect between those NGOs that are driving the fancy white trucks and, and the people that are living in the villages. And so you have to spend that time of, of having really honest conversations. And sometimes those honest conversations are difficult conversations to have. 
And I watch the majority of the students who we have at Bishops who have gone to Malawi. You know, most of them come from the the archetype of who becomes a teacher. They're white, upper middle class women from a Christian background. They're very dedicated people. They're very lovely people, very kind people. But you can see that in those initial conversations that they're having with local community, it's very much this dance of politeness between the two groups. The local community have an expectation of what they're supposed to say to the young women that are there, the university, and the same thing, vice versa. And you have to get to the point where you're going to have like an honest conversation with somebody and, and say, that's super interesting, but no. <laughs> you, know, you, you have to be able to say that and not in a top down kind of way, but in a way of, well, like Frary said, you know, nobody comes to a conversation, you know, being perfect sages or completely ignorant. Right. And to start having that real kind of conversation, well, you got to be sitting with a person for an extended period of time, right. For a long time. And then you get to a point like in any kind of, any kind of relationship building where you're able to say things that are a little bit more honest than the day before. And it's all about that. That's when we started to make the, the biggest advancements. And that was like the story I told you earlier about Chief Makupo, like around after four years where he said like, okay, I'm going to stop playing games with you now. Right? It, it, it took like, it took four years, you know, uh, of the two of us going like, okay, so what kind of games are we playing with each other? And you can't, the difficulty is that if you apply to a research grant or anything like that, if you apply for a shirt grant or you, you know, any kind of the Canadian research grants that we have, or usually they're typically giving you like a three-year window to get things done, right? Here's your three-year window. So when do you make that in that research grant and your, you know, the, what you've, you've outlined for your, your schedule or your plan, how much time do you give yourself to develop a real relationship? But three months, you know, after three months, we're able to talk to each other. Honestly, it doesn't work that way. It takes like a long time to be able to have a, a real conversation with somebody. And it's funny because we know that in our daily lives, we, we know that the neighbor that we live next to, how long does it take for you to actually get to know your neighbor that you live next to? And, and that's that kind of commitment. It goes against a lot of the things that we a lot of the things that's the norm of, of a university. A university typically is uh, risk adverse, right? And they're commitment adverse. They, they want to be able to offer things to students which are experiential, but that are quick, right? You pay your fee to take a course, you go somewhere, you get your pictures, we post it on Facebook, that's it. You're done. That's how universities as corporations see these things. But it, for the kind of work that, that you're doing, Adam, you can't, like, you can't look at it that way. Because in many ways, if you're engaging in this kind of research, or you're, I don't even want to call it research, if you're engaged in this kind of like relationship building, you, you can't really live with yourself if you're going to try and do it in that, that kind of corporate university way. Yeah, it's funny you say that. That's been one of my bigger takeaways, actually, going through the doc program in my fourth year now, is that I don't think the traditional academic path is for me because of that, right? Because it, it pulls me away from what I feel like is the whole point of doing this. And I've sacrificed a lot 
living 10 years in rural Peru because of my commitment to, to the cause there and my connection to the culture. I guess one last follow-up question that has to do with 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 that time commitment. I mean, there's also a geographic commitment, right? So the the question has to do with the relationship between relationship building and being physically present, right, in a long-term endeavor. So how do you grapple with advancing a project, a multi-year project, right, and you said that the most important thing is time commitment. And I guess what I'm asking is how important is the relationship between committing time and physically being in that space where you're executing the program? Okay, thank you. That was very well posed. So at the beginning, I'll just repeat what I said earlier. It, it was really a case of in those first, like I'd say three, four years, around 2008 when we started to develop the project, or like not a project, but an initiative, it, there was no, there were, we were staying in locations where, you know, there was no running water, there was no electricity, there were no cell phones at the time. And you realize that, yeah, you actually had to be on the ground to have those kinds of conversations with people. Otherwise, how are you going to communicate when you return back to your university? And that's part of like being a professor is, yeah, I can take my, you know, my summers or I can take a sabbatical you know, and go to Malawi, but then I got to go back to the university and I got to teach my courses, right? And so that, that, was, that was difficult. We did our best in terms of communicating with each other. I have to say that, that you know, the smartphones may have made a huge difference, as we know, all through the Global South. Getting on WhatsApp, I think that was around like maybe five years ago where we were, where in Malawi, WhatsApp became like super accessible, where I started to then purchase cell phones and give them to key community members where we were able to communicate on, on a daily basis. We set up a computer lab that's completely solar that has internet access to it so that they could communicate with us. And so somebody like Dalatsani or somebody like Owen or Esther, any of the people that are in like the leadership positions in on the campus, they're texting me every day, <laughs> every day, or we're video chatting. And that's made a huge, huge difference. Would they rather me be on the ground? COVID-19 was a huge, a huge hit. They really were hoping because they like that. They like you being on the ground, obviously, right? Because it's a, it's a chance to, 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 to physically be able to make a different kind of connection than you would through texting or through calling or, you know, video calling or anything like that. But but this atom has made a huge, huge, huge difference. Every, you know, I have these dark circles under my eyes, not just because I'm an old guy, but because, you know, I will start getting texts at around like two, three in the morning. And I want to have those conversations with them. And vice versa for them as well. They're staying up until like, you know, 11, 12 at night because they're trying to catch me at a, a, a decent hour where they can have a conversation with me. And these aren't like short little conversations. You know, these are like big conversations about permaculture, about uh, structure, about like structures that, that are relating to health education that they're trying to develop. And, and they want to have those, they want to have those conversations with you, not out of a sense of we need to get permission, 
but because they want to have those conversations with you because you've been a part of it and they're a part of it. And that has made a huge, huge difference. So you, you have to be available. You have to be available to them. But nothing beats obviously being on the ground. Nothing beats that at all. Yeah, that resonates with me as well because I'm in the same position as you, right? I'm I'm a, a little bit younger, just a couple of years younger than you. Oh, you're much younger than me, yeah. <laughs> but starting the tenure track faculty position and having done work in Peru for seven years before starting that position, presence and the challenges of navigating between the needs of fulfilling your responsibilities at the university, as well as the needs of fulfilling the goals and the objectives and meeting the needs of the community within the community projects that you're working on. It can be a challenge. I know WhatsApp has been very helpful for me too, especially during COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, we've done a lot of really interesting things with education and tele-education during COVID because of WhatsApp and technology. It's time for a lightning round. Adam and Joe have prepared some key questions for Christopher. His challenge is to answer them in the shortest amount of time. First question, what does Transformative Praxis Malawi actually do? Uh, we are a space for lifelong learning where we are working with a local community to take ownership of a space that will be uniquely theirs. It's also a space where they're allowed to risk and fail. Because typically for people in the global south, there's such a fine line that they don't have the same opportunities that we totally take for granted for granted uh, in the global north, where we can fail like 10 times in a row and the system will just allow us to continue failing and have another chance. It's not like that in the global south. So this is a space where they're allowed to fail. Next question. Why is this valuable? I think in the truest variant sense, it's an opportunity for two groups or more of people feel more human. Next question. How is this action research? What makes it action research? I think it's naturally action research because we're dealing with, <laughs> with real human needs and there's no other way to do it as far as I'm concerned if you're dealing with community than to, you know, observe and act. Next question. How does Frere inform this project in Malawi? And how do you take consideration of the contextual differences? For me to be able to answer this, funny enough, it's easier to apply Frere to the global south in places like Malawi than it would be in a Canadian Montreal context, quite frankly. Do you want more? Yeah. Uh, a little bit further than that? Damn you, Joe. <laughs> Damn you straight to hell. You can put that in. <laughs> it's the yeah, title I, I, of the podcast yeah yeah damn you straight to hell Joe. <laughs> so it's i i don't know if i can do a 15 second answer to this i, I think frary became more relevant to me in malawi than it did in canada i was completely dissatisfied with what i was seeing from the critical pedagogy group in united states and canada it just seemed meaningless in in Malawi, it just had more meaning. And we read Frary with local community members. And it, it spoke to their needs and their experience as well. Because let's be let's be real, Joe. Like like you said earlier, I can read the Mino and there are aspects of what Socrates says that you can clearly see that's where he's pulling from. Or Dewey, you can clearly see that he's pulling from Dewey as well. Right. 
And so that kind of contextual understanding of philosophy or a theory is very important. And it just, it seemed like Ferry finally had made more sense to me in Malawi than it did in Canada. Makes sense. Last question. What has been the biggest challenge for you as director of the TPM? I would say it's having to take on that leadership role. I didn't want it. I don't want it. I hate being called Moana. That's, I guess, another podcast that we can talk about. That idea of being in charge really goes against what I wanted to do. And then I've had a lot of really good answers from local Malawians who are also in positions of like being professors or, you know, ministers in the Department of Education who say to me, I don't know why you're avoiding you know, being the Bawana, it's a term that we use. You're clearly the steward of this space. And I don't know why you're running away from that. Of course, people are going to look at you as a professor and a PhD and think that you are, you're the Bawana, but I hate it. I absolutely hate it. That's the biggest challenge for me. Great. Would you mind sharing some advice based on your experience as, a, let's face it, a field practitioner, also a tenured track full-time faculty member. Oh, I'm tenured. You got to remember that he's a full professor, which is a step above associate professor. It's as far as you can go. Cross the finish line. That's right. What (laughs) advice do you have for up and coming generation of potential action researchers, whether they be students, whether they be faculty, whether they're practitioners, what advice might you have for the next generation of up and coming action researchers? Okay. The quickest advice is do what fulfills you. Do what makes you feel complete. That's the most important thing because the the university gig is an ugly gig. I'm not saying that it's a hard gig, but we recently had a master's student, a person I absolutely adored, fantastic human being who dropped out of the graduate program right at the end, like right when this person could have finished their degree. And when I asked why, The response was because universities are mean spaces. I can't argue with that. Like I, there was, I had no argument to that. I was like, yeah, they are mean spaces. So for anybody who is, if, if they're, if they're doing this through academia, if they're doing this through university, higher education studies, I, I really wish you would make the university your home because then it would make my life easier. (laughs) <laughs> to have to have like-minded people in the field. I want to be able to support, support people as much as I can who are doing this kind of work. I never want to be the person that gets in the way uh, of what people are doing if they're doing, they're doing good work and they're struggling to do good work. But unfortunately, it is a, it's a mean space. And don't look at that one space as being your only avenue to be able to do this kind of work. We have to start to, I think we have to start pushing for new kinds of means to provide support for people to do this kind of work. And when you say we need to... I mean, like, look, right now you're doing something fantastic. You're putting uh, a podcast together on action research, and it's the first podcast on action research. And so building that community of people who are doing this kind of work and supporting each other is incredibly important to be able to, we haven't done that yet, really, you know, where we're, we're able to find, let's face it, like, you know, not just emotional support or intellectual support, but financial support. 
you know, we, we see all the vast amount of money that is, that is wasted through, you know, taxpayer money, which would be much better served. Well, let's continue down this road while we're having the conversation. How, right? I mean, how, how do you create such systemic change? Because right? it's a system, right? And I think for many, it's logical. I mean, I'm sitting here nodding my head as you speak because you're spot on. It always begs that question of how. And somebody like yourself that's crossed the finish line and has so many years of experience. And how? How do we do that? So what, unfortunately, I have gained in my 53 years on this planet is that, unfortunately, the greatest amount of change that happens is not being polite and is not being quiet. We've witnessed through the hashtag Me Too movement, through the BLM BIPOC movement, that these things need to be called out. Otherwise, the status quo just keeps on chugging along. No problem. No problem. They're just going to wait you out, Adam, because they're living comfortably. They don't care. They don't, they don't care if you're saying things to them like, please, <laughs> or would you consider? They'll just go on on their on their path and the status quo has shown us that the only time they respond to something is that if you publicly call them out on it because in essence you know most of your neighbors probably want to do the right thing they really do and so it needs to be called out so they recognize it and they say well i don't want to be a part of that shit i don't want to do that They'll say, I don't want to be a part of that. I'd rather be a part of, uh, you know, 100,000 that goes to Adam's community work. This is something that I'm really getting interested in now. So doing the leadership work and doing the leadership stuff, it's how do you identify those systems? How do you deconstruct those systems? And how do you reconstruct them to be more aligned with the values of the communities that they're embedded in? Because there is a technical skill set and it starts with awareness raising, but then there it goes into how do you recreate systems when there's so many deeply embedded systems that don't do what they're supposed to be doing? And how do you start to make new ways of engaging with people where people say, that's just the way we do it because it's the just way to do it. It's a socially just way to engage in a process of decision-making so that things like $219 million doesn't get lost or doesn't get misappropriated because there is mutual accountability. There are community decision-making processes to understand whose interests are getting met and how those interests and needs intersect. These are the kinds of things that I think action researchers actually are positioned to do much better because we're engaged in those day-to-day challenges of we're talking about a really important process or decision and we just have to make that decision on our, and we can make the decision that's more compassionate or caring, or we can make the decision that's more expedient. And most of the bureaucracies that I've engaged with are expedient. And that's really the only thing that matters. But if we start to look at compassion, it's harder work, it's longer work, it's more emotionally draining, but it's much more meaningful, much more fulfilling. That's my soapbox. Joe, would you agree that whether or not the founders of the hashtag me too movement were thinking about action research or not that they used an action research approach yeah i would say so right they did all the classical aspects of the observation reflection you know plan action right. so they did they, they they said very clearly themselves we tried to use your system mm-hmm. your system didn't work your system completely failed us right and and now we're going to call you out on it right, right. 
so you've got like the you know you, you've got like the the mean people that are hurting people's feelings and then you've got the other group of people that are saying like okay well you know i understand your feelings are hurt status quo but now how do we make change right so you you need that group and this has been my argument right now at bishops university dealing with the bipoc movement where you know people are are very clearly saying to me you're hurting our feelings by saying this space has systemic racism like every other institution. <laughs> Apparently, this hurts people's feelings. And, and and I'll say like, okay, well, if I have to hurt people's feelings, then I guess that's what I have to do. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I'm going to say what needs to be said. And then for the leadership aspect of it, you know, uh, you're going to have to have somebody who, you know, is going to be the person that they turn to for comfort. And then they go, well, okay, well, how do we, how do we make these changes? Like, what are we going to do, right? Because you know, they kind of have a point. <laughs> so how are, how are we going to do it? So it's that basic thing of you can't have like Martin Luther King without Malcolm X, right? You need the Malcolm X's. You need them to really call things out and to say things like, you know, I don't, I don't give a fuck. You know, I'm going to say things that you don't want to hear, but I'm going to say it. I think, Joe, with your personality, you're in a very, very good position to be the Yang you know, to my yang kind of thing, right? <laughs> You're not going to get any change through being nice and polite. I mean, I, look, I'm looking at the people in, in Malawi, in Zambia, in Mozambique, and, you know, Malawi in particular, the, the Chewa people pride themselves on being welcoming and being polite and being hospitable and wonderful, wonderful characteristics that they they really value and people basically walked all over them right no i'm not saying that the calling out is i agree with you 100 that you need that multi-pronged multi-layered approach to actually mm -hmm. make systemic sustainable change that is just that is equitable right. because without the push there's no way to start the thinking and you need the push and then you need the thinking otherwise on their own they're not going to do it Right. And the question is, in my mind at least, it's right now it's them. They're not going to do it. So how do we get into those spaces where we can say, how are we going to do this now differently than how you've been doing it? And that's where all this push needs to get certain people who have that way of, one, hearing, really hearing the community and what is needed. And then also how to translate that into processes and structures that are fundamentally different than what has come before. Yeah. So I don't really do like that kind of development work and I'm not really good at doing promotion. And one of the things that we know about development work is that increasingly we're being told, don't go to the global South with a specific project in mind, go there and seek projects that are already working and then support them. Right. Yeah. Instead of imposing something on them, you go to the local community and if you see three women who are engaged in making, I don't know, rocket stoves out of clay and you go, wow, that's really, it's great for the environment and everything. How do we support you so that you can provide more rocket stoves um, to other uh, moms and mothers so that they can, you know, live healthier. We know that that's what we're supposed to do in the global South. And yet we don't do that in the global North in any way whatsoever. So it's not like we're seeking out uh, people who are otherwise exhausted and really super busy and saying, how do we support you? 
we don't do that. Right. Right. We, you, the answer is for who's able to fill out and jump through the most amount of hoops that fits within the criteria and the categories that we have in order for you to get any kind of financial support. Right. And I can't tell you how many times the government has said to me, great work, but you're just too small. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we don't, we don't give grants for like a hundred thousand. Come back to us when you need 10 million. <laughs> it's, it's nonsense. You know, whereas we should be seeking out people who are doing good work and then saying, how do we support you? If I can just quickly interject that this kind of circles back to where I was coming from in that very first question I asked you about the campus community partnership, because Mm -hmm. to me, one of my stances in my own research is that there is value in a campus community partnership. And, And from where I'm coming from, that is you would think that such a brain trust that the, the brain trust that is the academy and all of these brilliant minds coming together to do amazing things would be able to address this issue in a way that is poignant and straightforward and help address complex but very real challenges, whether it's global or not, wherever, right? But it doesn't seem to be happening. And it's very frustrating. And it's why someone like myself is steering away from the traditional role in academia or like the student that you referred to. Right. So that, that was my, that was where I was coming from originally. It seems like we're circling back to that in this more macro level conversation. And to me, it's frustrating that there's so much funding and resources and energy and time and people really bright people that are exist in this collective world of the academy Yet, what is yet? There's still all these major, major challenges that exist all over the place, locally, nationally, internationally, and it drives me nuts. So, why isn't there a more concerted effort to address that? Joe, what's your answer? (laughs) (laughs) You're the the interviewee right now. (laughs) I do have a little bit of an answer that goes to some of the philosophy that we're talking about. Some of it is ego, just pure ego. Yeah, he's bang on. That's what I was going to (laughs) say. He's actually that's 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 unacceptable. That's 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 fucking unacceptable. But that's true. But it's it's true. I mean, no, but it's it's true. That's an unacceptable. It's true. Yeah, but it's also doesn't make it okay. And, and, right. and, and there's and enough people without right. egos too. I mean, yeah, everybody I, that I've spoken to, faculty, other people in, in the academy, they all seem to agree. Everybody seems to agree. But what? No one's willing to swallow that it's their own ego getting in the way. I don't. I don't buy that. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, and I don't want to oversimplify it because it's the reason that it's ego is because our society is set up with an assumption of atomistic self-interest as how we're supposed to live our lives. So if our ego-driven choices were to become a valued member of this larger community that mutually reinforces itself and mutually supports itself, people's behaviors would change significantly. But it's not. Our society and the university system and the business system is based on competition and overcoming those around you who you want to become better than. And so the ego is not necessarily because we all have egos, right? We're all like, we all are driven to feel like we're fulfilled and that we're safe and that we're comfortable in some way. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's Mm -hmm. partially our ego needs to be fulfilled in that way. But if we view our ego as I have done something that has contributed significantly to something that somebody else has identified for me, and that's how my ego is fulfilled, then that's a different way than saying, 
I have beat out X number of people to get this grant. And so I feel good because now I'm the, that's my ego and that's what's driving me. And so we, when we talk about ego, we're talking about ego in, in a few different ways, but ego in relationship to society. And fundamentally our society is about having professionals beat other professionals. And it doesn't really matter who else in the community is affected by that because that's the way that the structures within the university, within lawyers, within doctors even, who are supposed to be working for the community, but they just want to get the wins of curing people. They don't want to necessarily do the hard work of being with the community and make sure their community is healthier. It's ego in combination and in relationship to our society and what our society sees as the good. And other societies don't have that. And that's why their actions and the actions of people are very different. Yeah, we'll, we'll go back to the graduate student who said he was leaving the program because it was mean, or the, the institution because it was mean. He didn't want to like spend the rest of his life in a mean place. you know. So now he's actually doing groundwork with the community that he's actually interested in being with. And he's figuring out how to do it outside of the institution you know, without all of the credentialism that he was you know, told that he needed to have. So he's doing his thing. And I think, you know, for one second, I decided to be uh, cautious about what I I wanted to say. And then Joe jumped in and said ego. And that's absolutely true. That's the reality of the space, this institution. You can see it in hiring committees. Like hiring committees are very cautious about like who they're going to pick because do they want an absolute superstar to come in that's going to, to make them look bad? Or or is that going to be a new person they have to compete with? And that's the, you know, those those are the, that's the ugly truth of of the university environment. I I can't believe that I'm about to quote Henry Kissinger, but, you know, Joe, what was the famous quote? The reason that university politics is so vicious is because stakes are so small. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. And that's, there's a truth to that. I remember... You know, a professor, a senior professor at McGill telling me when I got my tenure track position, he just warned me. He said, there are people in a a good deal of people in academia who make their entire careers about destroying somebody else. So, Christopher, last question then. (laughs) Would would you say that action research diverges from the norm within academia to this with respect to this conversation? I think it does. Absolutely. I think because of the commitment, if you're actually doing action research, the commitment that's required goes against all of the check boxes that are, are needed in academia. Even submitting anyone who does action research and submits to a research ethics board, you know, realizes that they have to they have to fake a lot of what they're putting down on that, you know, that very standardized sheet of paper because the very nature of action research means you're working with local community and they can come up with plans and actions that are entirely different than your own. So how am I even going to put that down on you know, a standardized box for a research ethics board? And by virtue of that, yeah, it is not something I would say that most people truly understand at the university at, at, in, within the institution. And we also have to deal with the fact that anytime a researcher isn't entirely sure what they're doing, they also list it as being action research. 
right? If they're doing something that's kind of exploratory and fuzzy and they're not entirely sure what it is, then they make the mistake of saying that it's action research when it's not really action research. So I'm not a big person on like defining what it is, but at the same time, we, we have to recognize that some people are misusing the term and what its intent is. Uh, and at the same time, that intent of what we are actually doing when we do action research doesn't fit into all of the boxes that you're expected to fill out at a university. Yep, that's great. And I think, you know, I think we we couldn't ignore the fact that part of the reason that we're even doing this podcast is because we believe that also, you know, and we, we believe in promoting action research and we see the value and importance of it. And, you know, we've referred to it in the past as it being sort of like a little bit of an island in the world of academia, but more people seem to be gravitating towards it. And I think that we need to continue to push the importance of it, not only so people can promote and, you know, continue to promote their own interests, which they're entitled to as they grow professionally in the field of academia, but also to start chipping away at that larger systemic challenge that we face in the academy, which is like, what is the point? And if the answer to that does lie on this little island of action research, then I think uh, we're all taking a step towards a pretty worthy cause. With that said, Christopher, Dr. Stonebakes, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. It's been a really, really enjoyable conversation. I hope that we can continue this conversation in the future and hopefully in person sometime. Yeah. Listen, if we, if we do another podcast, you know, looking specifically on that concept of the difficulties of leadership and, and participant action research, next time I want Joe to introduce me as a doctor, I don't give a fuck. That's what That's <laughs> you're not going to get pushed back on my end. <laughs> but that would be something to, to explore next time, which is the, the little article that I've been for five years. It's been sitting there and the, the struggle about how do you do community work and how do you deal with the fact that you are supposed to be the leader when everything about action research is telling you that it's a communal effort. But everything that you're having to deal with at the same time is saying you're the person, you're the Moana, you're the person that's in charge. Yeah, let's do it. Sounds great. Do you want to have any sort of uh, final reflection before we sign off? Only that what you guys are doing are super important. There, there's not enough spaces where we can we can talk this way, talk honestly. I, I think about all of the times I have presented on difficulties in action research, and you're doing your conference presentation. And you get to the point where any questions and then, you know, you'll get the typical kind of questions where, you know, you'll get maybe like a graduate student who wants to do a, a kacha moment or something like that. <laughs> and uh, you get through all that kind of stuff. And then you've usually got like around, I'm sure you guys have experienced this as well. You've got like around three people who are sticking around afterwards and then they want to have the real conversation with you. Mm -hmm. Right. Because yeah. we stay, we don't want to like... We don't want to publicly have those real conversations because they're really difficult things to grapple with. Because in many ways we feel, you know, like Joe was saying, we feel vulnerable. And so because we feel vulnerable in these public positions that we have, we give, we tend to give very safe answers. And we know that what we need to talk about isn't safe. Mm -hmm. It's going to make us uncomfortable. And I don't mean it in a mean way. I don't mean like a telling it like it is kind of way. I mean, like, how do I, how do I have a conversation, you know, with Sheikah, for instance, 
where I say, what does it mean, you know, for us to be people of color doing work with people of color when we're under the same umbrella that gets critiqued as, you know, colonial settlerism and all this kind of stuff when that's not our history, it's not our experience, it's not our background. How do we have those kinds of conversations when it's going to make a lot of people uncomfortable if we have those kinds of conversations? So that's a podcast that uh, Sheik and I, where we've, we've now developed a new podcast. It's called People of Color and Action Research. It's the first of its <laughs> kind. And uh, yeah, we just, we just, we did a spinoff right there, Joe. We're off. <laughs> nice. I like it. <laughs> like any, anything that's successful should have spinoffs, right? So <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. We're, we're going to be the mod to your all in the family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, th- thanks for bringing the honesty, you know, and the frank conversation. It was really great having that Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to the break, to listening to the podcast, and I'm hoping I'm going to hear a lot of honest conversations yeah. uh, when I go to the podcast. Yeah. Cool. Hey. Yeah. Thanks, thanks, Christopher. Enjoy the rest of your day. We've been experimenting with the way we share content with our listeners, and we'd love to hear your feedback. How are we doing? Have any ideas for future episodes? Reach out to us on Twitter at the AR Pod or the Action Research Podcast. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time. How have you found yourself in the world of action research? Want to be interviewed or share one of your projects? Engage in interactive dialogue with Joe, Adam, and other experts and listeners in the community on Twitter at the underscore AR Pod or the Action Research Podcast.